This is an ABC podcast. Interest in First Nations storytelling has grown enormously in recent years, so much so that today many of Australia's leading authors are Indigenous and their books are garnering accolades and winning prestigious awards. One of these authors is Wiradjuri woman Anita Heiss, and she's your guest on This Big Ideas. Hello, I'm Paul Barclay. Anita is a champion of First Nations writing. She believes we should all be reading black, as she calls it. Her own historical novel, Billa Yaradhangalangjure, translated as River of Dreams, uses both the indigenous language of her family and English and reminds us of an important story from our past. You might remember Anita as one of a number of Aboriginal Australians who, more than a decade ago, took legal action against columnist Andrew Bolt for the comments he made about them, comments a court ruled had contravened the Racial Discrimination Act. In this conversation, Anita talks about her memoir, Am I Black Enough For You?, which has just been updated and republished to mark its 10th anniversary. This discussion took place on the land of the Eastern Kulin Nation at the busy and noisy Readings Bookstore in Melbourne. This book's been published uh, in updated form now. What made you decide to go back to the original memoir and update it? I was actually inspired by, I've got a copy here, the re-release of um, Professor Aline Morton Robinson's Talking Up to the White Woman mm. through UQP. And so that was re-released last year, and it's 20 years since that was coming out. And Jackie Huggins, who's got a fantastic collection of essays called Sister Girl, she was um, updating that. And I sat down and I thought to myself, you know, started to think about what had happened in the last 10 years since this book had come out, and so much had happened that I sat down and spoke to my publisher about, and I'd been writing during that period of time, writing some non-fiction and writing articles and so forth around the Black Lives Matter movement and share the mic and so forth, that I thought it was worthwhile having a look at trying to update this material. So you have done many things since. What do you reckon has been the highlight in the, in the 10 years that's passed since the book came out? Professionally? Professionally, uh, personally, um, okay. well, yeah. professionally, it would be the release of Billy Adadangalang Duray, yeah, because that's just been received in a way from the descendants of people who who survived and who drowned at the Great Flood of Gundagai, mm. right through to my, you know, my language tutors, to people I just meet at festivals, and to the industry, um, in terms of breaking some new ground with language. So professionally, probably that. Personally running my first marathon, I think, on the eve of my 49th birthday and then running another two in the next 12 months and then retiring. Well, retiring after each one. <laughs> and then waking up... You have up retired, have you, from running I've marathons? I've retired from marathon running. Uh, and the book that you just referred to, can you say the name again? Oh, we're going to do this together. Okay. Billy Yaradangalang Duray. So, Billa means river. Yaradang means dream. Galong is, the, Galong is the plural, so that's many dreams. And Duray is the action of having the dreams. So I think there's 22 letters in. I didn't even know. Someone came up to me at lunch. So I, we could, should we do it together? Let's yeah. give it a go. Yeah. So Billa. Billa. Yarudang. Yarudang. Galang. Galang. Duray. Duray. All right, on three. One, two, three. 
Villa Yarradungalundurai. There's, it ranges from fluent to woeful, but I don't. I just go give it a give it a go. If, if, river of dreams, you know. And the significance of the book yeah. uh, and the publication of the book is it has the Wiradjuri language on the front cover of the book, and when you flip it over, the back cover has the English translation. So it flips it, major milestone in Australian publication, and the book is full of Wiradjuri language. And in the process of uh, researching the book. You went on the journey of learning, mm. or perhaps even a bit before, on the journey of learning Wiradjuri. Mm. That's been a very important journey for you to be on. And I would say, aside professionally, prior to the last 10 years, going through the case will be the most important thing I ever do, yep. right? Not for me, but for everybody, for the changing Australian journalism and the persecution of blackfellas in the media. But personally, yeah, absolutely, learning my language has changed my life mm. and I know I know like 0.000% don't you cry you make me cry but there's a new there's a whole we talk about sovereignty never ceded and feeling disempowered and I can't tell you how empowered I feel being able to stand up and give a keynote or be in classroom with kids in Mudgee and and be able to share some language I know I don't know very much but I know I know how important it is for nation building mm. and for our Australian nation, I mean, we're our nation building, but Australian nation moving forward for all of us to um, embrace the importance of reclaiming and maintaining what I should have had from birth. Mm. So I learnt my language, what should have been my first language at the age of 50, and I sat in a classroom with elders in there. It was, it was actually, you know, very, very emotional because mm. I sat there in a complete position of privilege mm. in a First Nations context in a university on Wiradjuri country being endorsed by university to do this course, like they endorse this course, it's the only one of its kind in the country, uh, in, in a room with elders not much younger than my mum who grew up on a Rambi mission and, and Brungle mission, learning their language in their 60s and their 70s because they weren't allowed to learn it. Mm. And so um, it was really quite con challenging emotionally there doing mm. that, but yeah, absolutely best thing. Yeah. And now there's hundreds of people going. And uh, non-Indigenous people go as well. I meet loads of people who are teachers. They want to be better teachers in, at Wagga High or at Young Primary and for, for all their kids. You know, we have a national curriculum that is not being embedded the way, you know, rolled out the way it should be in terms of, um, you know, cross-cultural priorities and so forth. But I meet loads of people who just want to be better educators. And so that's also inspiring. In the book, you give a bunch of reasons why more of us white fellas should read black, as yep. you call them, books, books by black writers. Yep. Why should we? I had a couple of notes. Yeah. So I did, I did a keynote at um, the Wheeler Centre years ago and it was about 20 reasons you should read black. And so I had all these hashtags and, and recommended reading. So there were things like, you know, we write about human rights, we write the environment, we rewrite international, we, meaning our characters and our stories are international, we write, we write with dignity. And I think that's really important as well. We write to define ourselves. And part of this is about, part of Am I Black Enough For You is really about, if there's going to be a public conversation around Aboriginal identity, then we should be driving it. And the problem back then was, it was people who had no relationship with the community all, at all, who was trying to drive and steer and hijack and hijack that conversation. So I think we write, we write sexy, we write global, 
And so I've got 20 reasons. We, we write as the first, people should read because we're the first storytellers. Mm. And there's this, and now we've got over 7,000 published First Nations writers and storytellers indexed into black words. Mm. So back in the 90s, I'd have people say to me, why can't I read, I won't name anybody, but why can't I read so-and-so who would be a, a non-Indigenous historian about until, a, until an Aboriginal person writes a history book? And I realised back then that we're so conditioned to believe we can only learn history from an academic text. And it's not true. You can learn history through watching a play or a film or reading poetry or reading an historical novel. You can even learn about history in, in chiclet. So conditioned through the academy, uh, which is why I left the academy in the, in, back in the day, because there was no real value on the literature that probably many of you read, and also like kids YA and kids picture books. I love reading kids picture mm. books because you know, particularly the ones out of Magabala that are about. Many of them are about language reclamation and maintenance. Their backlist is their front list because they, the stories never age, because they're about culture and history and so forth. We've had an explosion of renaissance really renaissance. in First Nations storytelling. Yeah. Even just in the last 10 years yeah. and Miles Franklin Award winners. Melissa Lukashenko, yep. Tara Jean Winch in the last 10 years. Yep. Larissa Barrent was just long listed. Yep. Evelyn Araluen just won the Stella Prize. Five of the 12 long listed were women of colour. Alexis Wright Including me. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> but we have been kicking goals, seriously. Tell us about a couple of your favourites. I know these are hard. This is a hard question. It's, okay. You know. So I'm not a parent. Who's a parent in the room? I'm told parents don't have favourites. Is that true? <laughs> it's not true because I was my father's favourite. Anyway, but so I'm not doing the favourite things. What I'm going to tell you are some books that I've read recently that I highly recommend. Yeah. Just finished Tony Birch's short stories. Oh my yeah. God! Has anybody read it? Yeah, I have. So the last story, getting oh, off the train. I go. I'm not ready to get off the train. This just came out recently. Or this year, so dark as the last night. I've read all of... Um, oh, Michaela, Michaela Saunders has just edited the world's first anthology of First Nations speculative fiction, and that is called uh, This All Come Back Now. And I'm not a spec fic reader. I didn't even know what speculative fiction was, right? Oh, my God, it's extraordinary. It's a complete... It's, 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 it's asking the what if. What if this could, is possible? And every single story is... It, it, they're incredible. So I recommend that. Larissa Barrent's After Story, which is long listed. I think people assume that Aboriginal readers of that work will relate to, you know, the Aboriginal themes within that. But I loved it because she goes on a literary tour in the UK. And I go, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that. I've read is, I mean, is there anything Larissa Barrent can't do? No, no, she's a filmmaker, <laughs> yeah. broadcaster. She's yeah. a genius. I've read all of Melissa Lukashenko's works from the first Steam Pigs back in 1997, I think it was. And of course, Too Much Lip. Have anyone read Too Much Lip? Yep. Run the Miles Franklin. But my favourite book of hers is Mullumbimby, which should be a film. I don't know. I think be maybe it's been optioned for a film. And I've read all of Jared Thomas's work. So he's cornered the market and, and created a real beautiful niche for YA. And his most recent work is My Spare Heart. So if you've got some teenagers, recommend that. Jack of Hearts came out this year. That's by um, Jackie Huggins and Nari Jarrow. They wrote about their father who was a POW and worked on the, the Burma Railway. So that, that came out of Magabala. And Anala Cooper's just released a book and it's called... I think it's Moral Aboriginal Identity and the Fight for Rights, and that's just come out through, I think, Melbourne University Press. So I've got that for my NAIDOC read. Fantastic. Well, there's a great list that we yep. can work our way through. Uh, now, when we spoke 10 years ago, I asked you about being dubbed Curry Bradshaw. Yes. In other words, the uh, 
Indigenous chick lit author. I don't know that you've written a lot of chick lit in recent times. I'm old. I'm uh, now on like auntie lit. Yeah, okay. You know, hen lit. I think you do like a good love story though. I like a love story. Uh, 54 this year, still looking for Mr. Rant. <laughs> the chick lit is really in your 30s, I think, and then it moves on to, like, there's rural lit and there's hen lit, and um, I sort of, like, that served its purpose, so avo not many Mr. Right, avoiding Mr. Right, Manhattan dreaming and Paris dreaming. Those works allowed me to reach, was my, well, actually was my, my entry into commercial fiction and allowed me to reach particularly women readers in Australia with issues that I thought all Australians should be talking about, but also, you know, shopping and sex and food and so forth. And Jeez. one of my research assistants is in the audience tonight. She helped me research not, avoiding, avoiding Mr Right, which is set in Melbourne. And every restaurant the character goes to, that night she astral travels to those countries. So we went to Spanish restaurants and Greek restaurants and Italian restaurants. And then I used all my travel diaries. And so she astral travel, has sex in her astral travelling. So mm. she's not really cheating on a boyfriend because she's asleep. <laughs> so, I mean, the stories sound light and amusing, but it's important for you that the characters, the female characters in the book, are infused with real substance and, and sass. Tell us about the characteristics that are important for you when you write those characters. Well, exactly that. So they're yeah. sassy and they're smart, um, they're educated and articulate and dignified in the face of adversity. They're just like every other woman in terms of we have good female friends and we, you know, we do all the things that women do. We bleed and we talk about life, have a cups of tea and so forth. But there's this element of accountability to community. And the women in all my stories are based around the reality of, that I know and that all my friends know. So, you know, yes, we go on holidays and we shop and we have cocktails and everything, but we sit on boards and we advocate in particular areas, whatever the area is. Uh, we do a lot of love jobs and, um, and we know that at the end of the day we're accountable to the mob that we represent, mm. yeah. So, but my, I want my characters, to, I want people to see us the way I see us. And so with Billy out of Dungalung Duray, people always say to me, oh, you've got this beautiful love story and um, Injimata's this great man. I go, yeah, because that's how all the men in my life are. Mm. They're hardworking, they're honest, they're caring and considerate, and they want to be the heroes for the women in their lives. And I, you know, our men particularly are demonised in the media and we either don't appear in Australian literature or we're underrepresented or misrepresented and the reality is if you want to write the great Australian novel you cannot write it and leave out Indigenous Australia because wherever your novel is set it's set on the traditional lands of somebody right and you can't you can't just pretend that doesn't happen and I think the I think my chiclet novels or chocolate novels did really well because it was the first time there were you know Aboriginal women in Australian storylines who were just teachers and parents and going to work and uh, having relationships with their friends and with other people as well mm. whether it was a woman or a man or whatever well the books are about challenging stereotypes really stereotypes that often white people have about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and you are very much, very proudly I think your own person and your books and novels reflect that and on the back cover of, of the book uh, are the words, I'm Aboriginal, I'm just not the Aboriginal person a lot of people want or expect me to be and I've always understood your memoir as being essentially about defying and challenging stereotypes, other people's ideas 
of what it is to be an Aboriginal woman. Do you still find that there are people who find that you're not the kind of Aboriginal person they want you to be? I think it's, it's moved on from being, oh, not necessarily, you know, previous years, oh, but you live in the city and you, you went to a Catholic school and you have blue eyes and so all the physical, tangible things that those stereotypes portrayed on television, documentaries and the media and so forth. And now it's like you're expect the expectations are so different. The expectations are you are Blackopedia and you're expected to have the answer for everything. Tell us about everything, you know, and I'm just like, well, you tell, tell us about your traditional political systems. Well, you tell me about the Westminster system you live under. I remember Tess Allen said that years, years and years ago, Alice, I should say, and it's true. You know, white fellas expect you to have the answers to things that you don't have the answers to yourselves. Mm. Um, and also the Western language around defining Indigenous peoples internationally is a language they don't use for themselves. So Westerners are allowed to become cosmopolitan and develop and grow and evolve and have you know, one identity with mixed heritage, heritages, but we're told, oh, if you, we intermarry, you're watering down your bloodlines and you're straddling two worlds and you're a, a part of a caste system. So actually, if you're in the audience, in the audience tonight, you can do this too. You know, can you raise your hand if you identify as Australian? And then can you leave your hand up if you have other heritage? Yes. So my maths isn't very good. We'll, we'll go with 50% of the audience, right? So yeah. 50 for those people who put their hands up twice, would it be fair to say that you have one identity, that is being Australian, but you have other heritage? Yeah. Well, so do we. Yeah. My, my identity is as a Wiradjuri, you know, yeah. right? Very proud of my Austrian heritage. My heist means hot, never changing my name, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I was raised and socialised here, and that is my identity. But I never hear... Non-Indigenous Australians say, oh, yes, I'm only half-caste because my mother was born in Greece mm. or I'm, I'm quarter-caste because my grandparents were born in, in Ireland. It's a completely different language. And when I was young, in the 70s, it would be, you're an ABO, right? You're an ABO. Mm. And then it'd be, oh, but you're only half-caste. So this whole thing that Westerners believe they can give you your identity, but then they're going to take half away because yeah. it doesn't fit the prescription, which was what led to me writing that, really. Mm. It's like, you know... These are prescriptions that are coming from outside in a system that was set up during invasion and colonisation. A caste system was created to, so that darker kids would go into servitude and the lighter kids would be fostered out and eventually marry out and we, the, the problem would be solved. The mm. Aboriginal problem would be solved, right? Yeah. But all that and, you know, and, and therefore... And all, then all the land would be free for the settlers because all the blacks would be on camps and in, in servitude and so forth. And the reality is, I think I saw something on the news yesterday saying their population's growing. Yeah. yeah. So, so with success comes, I suppose, a variety of opportunities for someone like yourself. Does it also lead to pressure on you to be this person who, as you say, has the answer for everything, is the kind of benchmark Aboriginal woman in, in a sense. Do you feel that pressure because you are an ambassador for certain causes, yeah. you are a writer, you are working at a university, you're a Professor Heiss these days. Uh, do you feel Excuse the me, pressure professor that comes Heiss with... Professor Heiss AM. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which is another story because <laughs> I'm a Republican, so that was weird. Oh, very honoured and humble, but that was, that was an interesting experience. So yeah. do you feel like you have to live up to this reputation of being... Yeah, because I know when I'm invited to give a keynote at a conference, 
that there is an expectation. I need to let go of that too. I just go, I'm going to give you, you get what I give you. Mm. I'm, I'm not the walking, talking encyclopedia. I, can, I talk about Wiradjuri values and, and so forth. And, my, and I'm a writer, so I talk about the role of storytelling and literature and, you know, I do a lot of PD as well and I, just, and I get the teachers and principals to do what I do with kids in class mm. because they, they've got a lot of learning to do as well. Yeah. Because we've still got people graduating in, out of universities in Australia having not done one subject, yep. going into classrooms going into law firms, going into health, having not done one subject on, on anything to do with Indigenous Australia. Mm. I did Year 12 Australian history. It was scarcely... There was scarcely any mention, actually. There's nothing in my... I knew more than my teachers. I always got a good mark, and I know I was right, but they didn't know either, so... so but that was back in the dream time. That was a long time ago. Now, you write about the importance of Aboriginal people striving for excellence, as you have. Excellence brings respect, recognition, opportunities to participate, you write. How do we encourage and foster excellence in First Nations kids? I do a lot of work with kids in schools and it's already there. I, you know, I think there's this expectation in Australia that the excellence isn't there. And First Nations people in this country are spoken of constantly from a deficit position, right? And the closing the gap statistics actually gobble up all those pockets where excellence is happening. So I've had principals say, come into my office and they would show me the rise in literacy in their schools that is lost in the main, in the big picture. And when our kids are constantly hearing that targets aren't being met, right? And, the, and these are the statistics. The, they're, they're, they're then being told that they're not excellent mm. by the statistics. I think the issue is fostering a desire for excellence in teaching. Now, teachers work... I, I would never be a teacher. It's so much work. I do an hour in a classroom. I need a gin and tonic and a lie down, honestly. <laughs> but I, I have so much respect. But I think what's, fa what's failing the education system and all Australian children, because diversity in the classroom isn't just for our kids. All Australian kids should see diversity in their materials and in their resources, right? So that they can connect with other, all cultures, with what makes us the same as human beings and then celebrate, whether it's... And, 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 and what connects them as kids, whether it's playing footy or fishing or singing or watching TV, they can go, I like that too, even though you're, you know, oh, oh you're a Muslim kid, but you watch whatever. And I think, what's, I think to foster excellence in all our kids is to actually work to a national curriculum uh, um, that actually has uh, a focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. And, I mean, I had a teacher come up to me during Reconciliation Week, when I spoke at the State Library a couple of years ago, a teacher from a school on the Gold Coast, she said they still didn't teach the stolen generations. How is that even possible? Mm. I'm chatting with First Nations writer Anita Heiss at Readings Bookstore in Melbourne. Anita is an advocate for Indigenous literacy and an ambassador for the Go Foundation, which helps empower Indigenous Australians through education. The Go Foundation was established by former Sydney Swans footballers Michael O'Loughlin and Adam Goods. Adam was one of the all-time greats of the game, but was the focus of relentless booing by AFL crowds near the end of his career. Booing that many believe was racist. You've come to um, Victoria, which is AFL country. Yeah. Uh, I'm an AFL fan. Uh, the booing of Adam Goods, yeah. which led him, I should say, to quit the game 
that he was a champion of is one of the most appalling things I've ever seen. I know that you know, Adam, uh, what, what, and you touch on this in the book, what did you make of that and do you think that the AFL and sport in general has learnt from that terrible saga? Oh, well, I'd, I'd hope so. You know, there's been episodes since then, but I, I think I was overseas at the time when, that, when it was really, really, really bad. Adam was already Australian of the Year. And, you know, then there was week after week after week that every time he got the ball, he was just booed. And I remember having a conversation with him and just saying, you need to just focus on the people you respect. But it's easy to say, because people said the same thing to me and I didn't, I had nothing compared to what he had. And I think it's a real stain on the code that he left the game the way he did and the AFL failed him and failed and actually failed the fans and everybody who who recognised how appalling that was. But when, have people seen the, the final quarter, the doco? Yeah. So I went to Sydney to watch that before it was premiered so that I could see what was in it. And I sat in that, in that producer's suite by myself in the dark and I felt unsafe watching that because it's not nothing, it's not new material, it's just all the cut up of all the... It's a montage. It's a montage film. of all the media and all the, uh, you know, the games and so forth. So it's really just compacted. And when you watch it all in one hit, it's so distressing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm sitting there sobbing, thinking, I feel unsafe that there's tens of thousands of people at every game thinking it's okay to behave like that. It makes me think, what does it take for a nation to be able to, en masse, have so many people filled with that kind of hatred and they don't even recognise that it's race hate? Didn't even recognise it. Oh, yeah, and you compare it in the book to that moment when Cathy Freeman won gold in the 400 yeah. metres yep. at the Sydney Olympic Games and Cathy being a beloved Australian. Yeah. How are we to make sense of that, of, uh, of the embrace of Cathy Freeman by mainstream Australia and the booing of Adam Goods by a similar chunk of mainstream Australia at, at the football? You see, that's, I don't have the answer to that. that yeah. I mean, my publisher said, I don't have the answer. No, that's my it's... question to the reader. Mm. How is that possible? We celebrated in 2020 the 20th anniversary and I believe, and I've written a book about, the, you know, a novel, you know, Our Race Reconciliation, about a girl who wants to be Cathy Freeman. It's set in 2000. And I believe that moment. I watched that. Does everybody remember where they were? Yep. Was anybody there? Because I meet so many people. Oh, yeah, was, it's, there were so the many volunteers. Yeah. And so I think that moment, though, when she... Well, first of all, there's light in the cauldron, right? And um, there was really no other athlete that could have done that mm. or have worn a white bodysuit. Mm -hmm. But um, when she won gold, I've watched that race so many times because I, I believe that that was a really defining moment of unity mm. uh, in Australia. And also when the, doc so when the documentary came out about, the, about her 20th anniversary, I, like so many Australians said they love her. She was in 94, I think, Young Australian of the Year and then Australian of the Year later and then, of course, Adam Australian of the Year, both elite athletes, as mm. you say, top of their game, role models, not just for black fellas but mm. for people around the country, young people and old people. So why was he treated so differently? I don't know. Yeah, it is a mystery, do, isn't it? I do feel that, may not get invited back, but I do feel Victoria has a responsibility in that because I think there are 18 teams in the, most in the of, code. Most of the sides most are here Most of in the Melbourne, teams are Victorian, Victoria, yeah. right? All those commentators were Victorian. So I really feel that Victoria needs to step up in, in, in that space because I don't know one Victorian that hasn't got a team that they barrack for. 
You mentioned the Go Foundation before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just tell us a bit about your work for so Go and what and what the Go so Foundation does. Michael, so Goods O'Loughlin Foundation. So my, both Michael and Adam had very committed mothers committed to education. So they both know the value of education. Obviously, they're you know Sydney Swans legends, and, and Adam was a twice Brownlow medalist. But they are astute businessmen. They are very clever businessmen. And they've set up this foundation, and it's a, it's a scholarship-based foundation. There's 26 schools, most of them are public schools, five universities that are partners, but this whole ecosystem of corporates um, and career trackers, and it's not just about here's, here's your scholarship to get you through primary school. It's literally from primary school right into the workforce, and every day of their lives these, these, these kids have and young people have someone to ring if there's a problem. Mm. And it can range from family, I, you know, I'm looking after mum or whatever, to housing, or it could be simple, I need a tutor, or I've seen that the students, they do this big lunch and they can raise $500,000 at lunch, right? Because they know all the top end of town. I need them to be coming to my ILF stuff. But they, the, the, the scholars, they get up and they... I know them to be incredibly shy and they get up and I tell you, they could train some AFL players on how to speak. Mm. And talking about the excellence, how do we get them from here to shining to be a professor or whatever they want to be? I don't even care for what people want to be, right? Yeah. It's them knowing that there's always someone there to ask. And it, as I say, it's a whole ecosystem. Mm. And they're really, because they have pool, they've got some amazing partners on board. So I'm really proud to be an ambassador. I don't have to do much. I run, no, I mean, I do mean to run, they do mentor days and I run workshops and, and so forth. Get good seats at the SCG Get when the Sydney Swans are playing, I bet. Got to toss the coin. At yeah, the you moment. did. That was quite stressful as well. well. Yeah, it's quite difficult if you don't ever toss a coin. I'd have lessons. <laughs> uh, look, family is very, very important to you. It comes through in the book. I know you well enough to know that your parents are... Uh, an incredibly important part of your life. Your dad is no longer uh, with us. Your Mum is a, a proud Catholic woman, I think. Just talk a bit about how important your family and your parents especially have yeah. been to you in your life. So I grew up in a home, so my mum was born on a, a Rambi mission in Cowra in 1937. And my father was born in a little village in Austria called St. Michael, Nulunga, 90 kilometres out, I think it was outside of the city of Salzburg. He met my mum at a party in Pagewood with other Austrians and she was there with a, a friend that she waitressed with. Fell in love with her immediately and stalked her. Um, she lived in Redfern then and she, like, they had their first date. They went to a in Greek... A good way. Good, no, good way. Courted in the 1960s. <laughs> it was courting. And so I grew up in a house... I grew up in a house full of love and it's really interesting because I have lots of friends who didn't and you, it's almost terrible to say that, that now these days, you know, because there's so many broke, you know, single family parents and I said, I grew up in a house full of love. Race was never an issue. It was about shared family values and work ethics and so forth and I think, I know that's one of the reasons I'm single because I want what I grew up and I saw, right? My mother worked, my mother finished schooling when she was 42 at TAFE. She went and did year 10. She worked nights at the drive-in. My father worked seven days a week covered in sawdust in, in, in the garage. We had a very small family in Sydney, but you know, now I go, and I've always gone back to Tumut and so forth in the last few years. I think the different things, the difference between talking about family or Miagan is the word in Wiradjuri, is so, my cousin, Joe Williams, his father and my grandfather, James, 
they were cousins, but we don't go, oh, well, like with third cousins removed. Everyone's just cousins, right? And I think, so when you say this, I'm introducing it's my family, it's my family, it's my cousin, it's my aunt. Oh my God, you've got so many people because we don't, there's no just this, everybody's just mob. So, yeah. um, and I think my mum's ageing and we don't know like how much longer she's got and she's very frail. And I know the impact that she's going to have, the impact it will have when she passes because she's been the matriarch for so many people for so long. You wrote about your dad, actually, that, you know, identity is obviously a very important thing to you, but you wrote that you'd never sat down. Your dad's, as you said, uh, Austrian. Uh, you'd never spoken to him about how you felt about your own Aboriginal identity. That, that, that conversation never happened. He never asked. I always thought that was a really interesting thing. Can I tell you, blackfellas don't sit around talking about identity all the time. We talk about it when someone asks a question, mm. right? So that's one thing. But the only person I felt ever had a right to ask me anything was him, and he never did, mm. because he loved me unconditionally, loved all his kids unconditionally, loved mum unconditionally, and, you know, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> and um, he would drive me to the marches, he would make the flagpoles, and he would just say, don't get arrested. And you know, you know that scene in, um, and I go, have your checkbook ready, Dad? <laughs> but you know, in um, Rain Man, and Tom Cruise tells a story about how he took the car out, the father's car out for a few days with his mates, or took it out for a day, and his father reported it stolen, and all the mates' fathers came and picked them up, and his father left him there. I thought, oh yeah, that'd be my dad. But um, <laughs> no, he never, you know, he just, he under, my father became part of my mum's family because he had no family in Australia, you know, so it was interesting. Like my grandfather didn't walk my, my, my mum down the aisle because Dad wasn't marrying a black fella, and that's a really sore point. But that, you know, so it went both ways, but the minute she got married, that was it. He was mm. part of the family, you know, my grandfather said Elsie's made a choice. And then I remember being at my uncle's funeral in Griffith, I don't even know, maybe 95. We drove out and back to Griffith in a day, I think. It was a long drive. And somebody singing out across the hall, you know, over the egg sandwiches, whatever. Hey, Els, I didn't know Joe was a wog. I thought he was curry, which is blatantly racist. Mm. But he was chuffed by that because he, I could see that he felt a sense of of belonging, that mm. people thought he belonged with them. Because yep. I look like my dad. I'm talking with author Anita Heiss about the updated version of her memoir, Am I Black Enough For You? Ten years ago, when it was first published, I spoke to Anita at another bookstore, and she recounted then how she felt when her identity as an Aboriginal Australian was questioned by columnist Andrew Bolt, who branded her along with eight other First Nations people, as fair-skinned. And just to be clear, some of the words I used in my questions to Anita are from Andrew Bolt's column, as distinct from being my own. I woke up on a normal day, a normal day that I have in my little suburban place at Matraville, which is strategically placed between Long Bay Jail, Malabar Sewerage Works and Oracle Industrial <laughs> Estate. Perfect setting for creative inspiration. And um, turned on the computer and there's a Google alert about this article that I skimmed really quickly because I had lots of other things I needed to do and saw all these untruths about me, but not only me, a number of people that I know quite well, some of them close friends of mine, Tara June Winch, Larissa Barrent and so forth, and wondered straight away 
couldn't believe it, what I was reading was in the public domain for a number of reasons. One, because it was full of all these untruths. Two, because I wondered how it got through an editing process and I write for a living. So I'm, you know, I'm always looking for these sort of things. And really quickly posted it on Facebook and then raced off to do the things I needed to do for that day. And, and in that period of time, within a couple of hours, the, obviously the story had been syndicated and it was run throughout the, the country and so forth. And I'm getting text messages and phone calls and Facebook's going crazy. And my mother, I, I, drove, I was driving along Southern Cross Drive going into Redfern and I rang Larissa straight away and I go, like, have you seen this article? And of course, by 11 o'clock, everybody had seen it. Had a quick talk. My phone rang its mum. My mother was born on a Rambi mission in Cowra and um, she hadn't seen the article but she'd been called from someone in Adelaide saying, telling her what was in the story and she was really, really upset that he had described her as part Aboriginal because it had denied her her own family history and story and uh, was a slight against her parents. And, and I was trying to appease her saying, you know, Mum, this, this journalist, sorry, this opinion columnist, he, um, this, he does this and, you know, tomorrow it'll be refugees or gay people or, you know, somebody else who's not bourgeois, white, middle class and, you know, it'll be fish and chip wrapper, which is what I thought at the time. I had no idea it was going to come to what it did and, of course, within 24 hours I'm getting phone calls left, right and centre and it's become people are angry. I get a call from the Courier Mail saying, will you comment? And I was like, why? Why are we making? Why are we using space in our media to give breath and life to something we know is appalling and wrong? And Kirsty Parker, who's the editor, had said to me, "We've had been contacted from people around the country who are angry." And so, you know, we ran something. And then about five days later, I got... Do you want me to keep going? You keep going, yeah. yeah. five days later, I got... Um, because I can do this. <laughs> five days later, I get a phone call from Tarawiri, which is the Aboriginal... Um, Students' Legal Association in Victoria saying uh, their members, some of their members, saw this as a very important issue to pick up because they had been dealing with this, these sort of comments that um, Andrew Bolt had been perpetuating in his articles. He'd written about nine or ten articles in the previous 12 months about blackfellas alone. I'm the one apparently making a career about, you know, writing about blackfellas. He would have made more money in one year than I'll make in a lifetime writing about us. And he, what he was essentially alleging, yep. uh, and correct me if this is an incorrect summary, he's alleging that people who are fair-skinned Aborigines, firstly, casting doubt over whether people whose skin is fair are really Aborigines anyway, to gain financial benefit from that, isn't he? Oh, well, I'll pick you up on that. He wasn't alleging. He was stating as fact. Stating as he fact. was putting into the public domain his opinion, but stating as fact that 17 of these people, including myself, had chosen to identify as Aboriginal people to better for financial gain and political purpose and so forth. We were light-skinned Aborigines. We were white Aborigines. We were political Aborigines. And can I say... Only at the age of 43 have I ever been, have I been the light one in the room, right? My entire life, I've been the dark one at the table, in the office, in most places. I was the Abo Boon Coon chocolate drop and cocoa pop at school. And then at the age of 43, there's a whole new terminology that's, that, that's being talked about in about me, that I'm turning on Media Watch and seeing you know, images of myself and being referred to as a light-skinned Aborigine. So he, he was basically, the premise was, you can't possibly look like Anita Heiss, you cannot go to a private school, you cannot live in the city, you cannot have a non-Indigenous parent and still 
identify. But what when you unpack that, which nobody really did, is what I think he was saying, why would you must be getting something out of this? Why would you say you're Aboriginal if you weren't getting something out of this? So what he was saying is it's bad to be black in Australia. And in order to be black, you have to look a certain way, you have to be unemployed, uneducated, disadvantaged. Now we had a Am I allowed to swear? Mm. We had a no, I won't. We had a civil rights <laughs> movement in this country to ensure that we had access to education, housing, employment, and so forth. And then all of a sudden, when we actually used the opportunities that our people marched for and went without for well, nearly two centuries, all of a sudden we can't be that person. So there was so many. I mean, I looked at that article in two ways. One was the the issue about confusing even further the Australian mm. public about what it means to be Aboriginal in Australia today and also the issue of people in positions of power, i.e. journalists and broadcasters, not being held to account for what they put into the public domain, especially given the readership of that newspaper and a lot of Australians getting, unfortunately, getting their education from the media. Mm. So at what point did you decide that it wasn't just offensive and wrong, but something had to be done about it? Because as you said, your first response was, you know, this is terrible, but you weren't thinking initially that you'd go to court. When, when did you decide to take that action? Look, it wasn't a decision I made easily, and and I'll tell you, it was it was it was traumatic. It's three years coming up for three years since that first appeared, and I still get upset about that because it took a chunk of time out of my life mm. that I didn't know it was going to take. You know, it didn't matter what I was doing. I had this dark cloud going. Oh, I've got to go to court at some point against this man who doesn't even know me to defend the right to be who I am. But, you know, I had lots of conversations. Some of my closest friends are Indigenous lawyers, obviously Robin Quiggan and Terry Janke, who I've known for 20-odd years, and um, and Larissa. We all went to university together, and they're all lawyers. And I rang Larissa and said, look, I'm not, I don't know about the law. You know, I write books. Not even that well, you know. <laughs> I, I was guided by people who said to me, you need to do this, Anita. It's not Marbo, but this is really significant for our people. And there's, there's things they cannot take. I mean, they took our kids. They've taken the right for income um, to control your own income in the Northern Territory. They've taken land. They can't legally take away your right to identify. And I mean, I know who I am. I didn't go to court to say, I want to prove to you who I am. Mm. Well, I went to court because I wanted to say... You cannot, as a journalist, use your position to incite racial hatred by saying what you said. So the process was quite long. Obviously, this happened in April. The first, all we wanted, we didn't, we didn't want to go to court. We wanted an apology and for the article to come off the web and the mm. blog. Meanwhile, there's all these comments. I don't know if, how many, did anybody read the comments on the blog by chance? Mm. They, they know the articles that were written. So I obviously had to read the articles and I was upset that my name had now become part of a process of facilitating race hate by people who'd never met me. He didn't know me. He'd never read my work. And so there's hundreds of comments by people just hiding behind anonymous email addresses and so forth. There's clearly no monitoring going on. The only time Andrew Bolt appeared on the blog was when he was challenging a black fella who wrote something on the blog and, that that, and then he only challenged their identity. Mm. You would have known, though, that the white legal system hasn't done Indigenous Australians too many favours over the years. So and you would have known you're throwing yourself into this arena. You're feeling like there's an issue of justice at stake here. But on the other hand, you would have thought, God, you know, we might not win. Well, I have to... I never... 
you're absolutely right, and I've written it in my book, but I never believed we wouldn't win because of that very reason, because the legal system has not done justice for us in terms of black deaths in custody, in terms of native title, and I thought at some point, if not the legal system, then the freaking universe had to go, it's our turn. Mm. But I also knew, <laughs> when I made my final decision, I was driving along in the city and I, I had lots of conversations. I think for my family, it was never a question, and it, you're going to do this. Not in a bad way, it was just like, this is, this is who you are. We know you're going to do this and it's, it'll be fine either way. But I was talking to Robin Quiggan on the phone. And I said, look, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I've never been to court. I don't know how this works. And she said to me, you've got some of the best legal counsel in the country. And, of course, we have a fantastic legal team in Ron Merkel and Herman Bernstein and Phoebe Knowles and so forth. And she said, you can bet your bottom dollar they're not going into this, in, into this to lose. And she said, they know their stuff. They wouldn't even be attempting this if they didn't believe that there was um, an honest, integral case to fight. So I got, I, I got some faith from that. And, um, and then, of course, it all goes ahead. And it, it's this long process. It's, it's, a, it's a really long, drawn-out, painful, annoying process because we think we're going to court in December of 2010 and I'm freaking out because it's the same week that Oprah's coming to Sydney <laughs> and, I, and I'm saying to the lawyer, I didn't want to say, I really can't go to Melbourne because I'm one of like a few thousand people out of hundreds of thousands who've got tickets to go to Oprah and and I'm seriously freaking out about this and my mother's graduating with um, that, that week. She's being given an honorary doctorate from uh, Notre Dame University, which is on one day and Oprah's on the other day and, and I had to <laughs> make a choice. <laughs> I had to make a choice. So anyway, we think we're going December. So that I'm reading, going, after read, rereading the blog, sitting at my desk, sobbing, and I won't I felt physically unsafe. I thought I wanted to change my, my parents' phone number because I thought if these people are that crazy enough to think that it's okay to write the shit that they were writing, I mean, I think some pe it demonstrated to me there's a lot of people who are unwell in our society, unchecked, to think that it's completely all right mm. to, to say the things they were saying um, and not be challenged by anybody else, that there's something wrong. And I felt physically unsafe. And, and reading it also, I thought to myself, this is like Nazi Germany. This is still this real belief that we are a lower specimen on this planet. So it's an insight really into what some people in Australia think and a scary insight. I, was, I was scared. I mm. was really scared. I mean, I won't lie to you, I go to these events always thinking there will be somebody in the audience that is here who's not here to support, that is here for a, a completely different reason. Mm. And I've been getting tweets from some lunatic uh, this week that, that is also... And it unnerves you. Mm. People say you just ignore it, but I just go, who goes out of their way to do stuff like that? So it's December, I'm reading, rereading the blogs, I'm crying, I'm in my office, my office mate's going, what's wrong? And, and I said, this makes me feel sick to the stomach. We end up not we end up not going to court the following week, which is great for Oprah and Mum. But <laughs> what it means is I feel sick until March, until I go to court. The agony drags on and, and on. And but the interesting thing is, I wanted to go to court because I wanted my I wanted to have my say. By mm. this point, I'm like, you know what? Put me on the stand. Yep. I already know I'm smarter than you are, right? And so, and then in his witness statement to the court, we all wrote really. I mean, really long witness statements, 30 pages, between 15 and 30 pages, all nine of us. The response to all of our witness statements from him was like nine pages in total. It was like this utter contempt for the legal system and for us 
And but in his his witness statement to me, he claimed that he used a photo of my mother off the web to determine on her wedding day to determine that she was part Aboriginal and therefore, you know, clearly I, I couldn't be Aboriginal. The, the photo that they submitted into their witness statement came off my blog on I think it was the 12th of February 2011. He wrote his article in 2009, right? So I go to Melbourne to go to court. So I go, you know, just put me up there. I'm ready. Mm. And I, you know, knew what I was... And I, there was, I have nothing to hide. Like, mm. my life is an open book. So still single. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, I'm ready. I, I go down to Melbourne on the Sunday and I meet Bindi Cole for the first time. We're in chambers with um, Herman and Ron and um, Phoebe and we're being, you know, they only want you for half an hour, Nita. I'm thinking, well, how much damage can I do in half an hour, you know, like really <laughs> to myself? No. Um, and I'm fine. I've got a new dress. I've got a new, a new <laughs> dress for court. Mm-hmm. I said, I said to my lawyer, Ron, um, Joel Zinger, I said, I'm putting that on the bill if we win. He goes, <laughs> he goes, you might be able to wear it again, Anita. I said, I don't intend going to court again, Joel. Had a new dress, had my, my nice shoes on. Anyway, so it, the morning comes. I actually have a really good night's sleep, which surprises me because I suffer from anxiety. Mm. And um, it surprised me. But I had a good night's sleep because I felt... I knew I had done nothing wrong. You were confident. None of us had done anything wrong. Mm. Surely that had to mean something. Mm. Get up in the morning, lots of text messages from people supporting, go to court. And I'm not kidding. From the minute till 10 o'clock, I was hoping that his lawyers would say to him, you're not going to win. Just make the apology. Let's move on. Didn't happen. So we get into court. They'd called, interesting, out of the nine, they called four people, all women, right, we get into courtroom and they're reading out, you know, who we're speaking to, and I've been dropped. So within that mm. 24 hours, somebody's actually jigged that, oh, we can't put her on the stand. Mm. And on top of that, I was a little bit darker than they expected me to be. Mm. Pity he used, like, the overexposed photo of Anita. No. So, so at recess, lunchtime, little lunch, whatever we call it, <laughs> I said, I said, do you think maybe I'm a little bit darker than they thought? You know, and... Um, because I'd spent a bit of time in the sun. And uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, and so I was actually disappointed that I didn't get to have my say, but I stayed there to watch, um, you know, Pat on the stand. She was amazing, Pat Etoch, and, uh, and Bindi and so forth. And, and then, of course, we have to wait all those months. That's right. You don't get the ruling that day, do you? In fact, you don't turn September up. September 28th. And you don't go to the court to see the ruling. You're in another state watching it, I think. Or... I was in Redfern. I went into Redfern and sat in the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence and sat in the boardroom of NASCA. But I... Just waiting the and waiting. Time, but, you know, the whole time... See, now I'm getting my say now. The whole time, <laughs> the whole time I go, right, I'm going to go down the day because we're going to win and I'm going to be there and I'm going to have my say on the steps. Of, well, they don't even have steps at this court. Like, you know, in the, on the TV. I stand on the steps and all the media will be there and I have a new dress on. And... Um, <laughs> And, and, I, I, and then what, what <laughs> happened was the week before I get the phone call going, we've got judgment, it's going to be on the 28th September, which, mind you, was the day after the deadlies. You know, one's a bit dusty the day after the deadlies. Mm. Okay. Mm. So I go, oh, that's not good. But all of a sudden I panicked and I thought, what if we don't win? I mean, it's about the law. What if the judge goes, you've done this, this, this and this, you're a 
terrible journalist, but you haven't actually breached the Racial Discrimination mm. Act. I didn't want to be in that space because mm. I would have been absolutely devastated, not, not about losing because it would have given him a mandate to, to just keep writing all this stuff that generated race hate. And I, I don't want to... I would have had to leave the country and I would have felt responsible for the young people that I was trying to save from that intimidation. Mm. So... I talked to my publisher and my life coach and my mum and anyway, so I decide to stay. I go into Redfern. The court goes in at 10.15. Media's already ringing me looking for a statement, but we'd already decided don't talk to the media. If we lose, definitely don't talk to the media. Mm. And if we win, I had already written a statement. And so 10.15, 10 10.20, I'm getting text messages from my friends telling me who's in the court and so forth. And within 20 minutes, I got a text from somebody saying, you've won. Mm. And it was just, you know, it was like it was worth it was mm. worth all the drama, mm. and and then of course the media go crazy with oh free speech oh no we lost our free speech no no you lost sorry how much free speech do you want you don't want free speech you want the right to racially vilify someone and that's two different things mm. so then I you know, you've got to sit back and watch all the different parties you know carry on about how they. People who are talking about their jobs essentially when I'm talking about my life mm, because the, ho- the whole verdict really opened up that whole so you live through this prolonged legal process you finally win and then upon winning a whole debate spins out of control following it doesn't it about people who say oh well you mightn't agree with andrew what andrew bolt says but you know he's got the right to free speech and you have to deal with all of that as yeah, well and we're not even in that debate yeah you know that's i've just but i just by then i, I was exhausted i was so tired sorry I just watched, um, I just sat back and watched, I go, you know, you guys can have the argument because it was basically people in media. And I had broadcasters that I respect and journalists that I previously respected text me on the day saying, you know, um, justice and so forth, but didn't say anything publicly. And, you know, that's just not good enough for me. I you know, think we, we've got nothing. I've got nothing. Anita Heiss has got nothing to lose. That's why, as black fellas, we can say and do what we want because we're not really, we're not in the game. Mm. We, we've got nothing to lose. We're still fighting for basic human rights in this country. It doesn't really matter what Anita Heiss says. Yeah. But you know, I'm, not, I'm not protecting a job or anything. I'm not going to get sacked by an employer. I work for myself. So, and all these people were having this debate, but at no time did people who said were arguing for free speech, did they actually unpack what he said mm. and actually unpack what was said on the blogs? None of them actually talked about racial vilification. Mm. I was told earlier today, oh, you know, now he writes on his blog things when something happens in the press about blackfellas, I can't comment on this because, you know, he's been silenced. And it was brought to my attention today. The court never told him he couldn't write. The court told him he had to write and present things in good faith. It was suggested to me, it's, his, it's the lawyers in the news saying, like, you need to shut the F up because it's costing us millions of dollars. And so he, nobody, no journalist was told that they couldn't talk about blackfellas or that they, could, they were told to actually do it within the legal boundaries. It does not incite racial hatred. A final question on this because there's much more to the Anita High story than just yeah, Andrew sorry. Bolt. You said afterwards this is quite possibly the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. Mm. Why so? Why do you feel that way? Because, I mean, when I was in the courtroom, I sat there and I thought to my, I thought about my grandmother who was uh, lived under the Act of Protection till her twenties and 
was removed at the age of six and I thought about our old people who, I shouldn't say that old now, but you know, old people who marched and I thought about the 1938 Day of Mourning. I thought about Windredine who, who marched our mob over the mountains and lit, lost lives to say, you know, for the Wiradjuri. And all I had to do was sit in a court of law in an air-conditioned room in a new frock and fight. But, you know, the one thing we've got, I said it before, that they can't, that they can't take away is who we are. Mm. I mean, we're still fighting for land. We still know it's ours, but legally we've got to get it. But I thought th- this was too important to me and I I didn't do it for me, for Anita. Like I said, I know who I am. I, I, my nieces and nephews, they're all fairer than me. That was Anita Heiss talking to me 10 years ago at Avid Reader Bookstore about her memoir pointedly titled Am I Black Enough For You? It's just been updated and republished. More details about Anita her books and a link to the full audio of that 2012 interview are available on our homepage. That's it for today. I'm Paul Barclay. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.